Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. We're glad that you are here and that you can be a part of a recent service at TCC. So let's join the service, which is already underway, and listen to the message. So over the past several weeks, we've been talking about attitude, and we're using the resource, Lord, change my attitude before it's too late. And I don't know about all of you, but it's been putting me in check. Um, I've been walking out with some soreness as the Word of God has been working in my heart to change some of my attitudes. And on the first week, just as a quick recap, sister, we talked on the woes of complaining, um, which was defined as expressing dissatisfaction with a circumstance that is not wrong and about which I'm doing nothing to correct. But thank God we do not have to stay in a complaining attitude. Um, We discovered that we can change that with an attitude of gratitude. My mom used to preach that to me, and I hated that saying, an attitude of gratitude, but it works. The series continued last week when Brother Ellis taught on turning a covetous attitude, which was defined as an attitude of wanting the wrong things or wanting right things but for the wrong reasons or at the wrong time or in the wrong amount, But we can change that into an attitude of contentment where we can rest in the satisfaction of God's sufficient provision. And I'm so thankful that we can trust God to supply all of our needs. Amen. This week, we're going to delve into another attitude exhibited by our dear murmuring Israelites and how much they have taught us um, with their time there in the wilderness. So we're going to dive into Numbers chapter 12. And verse 1 reads, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. So this phrase, spoke against, as we read in verse 1, is an expression. And I went and looked that up because I love words, so let's figure out the meaning of words. And it meant to vocalize one's criticisms of or arguments against someone or something. So to speak against really is saying to criticize. So in this verse, we can reread it as Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because of the Cushite woman. So this week, we are going to talk about criticism, and those who choose a critical attitude will live their lives in the wilderness. James McDonald, in his book, said that outlook determines outlook, meaning that the way we look at a matter or a situation and with which attitude we're looking at this situation has a direct impact on how we experience that reality. Unfortunately, a continuously critical attitude toward those around us will consume all that is healthy and joy-producing in our lives, and we will experience our reality through a negative lens. But what exactly is a critical attitude? Remember that attitudes are patterns of thinking. So if we're having a critical attitude, what is it that we are thinking? What are we engaging in? As we learned in the first session, complaining relates to situations. Criticism, on the other hand, relates to people, specifically our negative thinking that relates to people. As defined in the book, James McDonald said that criticism is dwelling upon the perceived faults of another with no view to their good. 
When we criticize someone, that is what we are doing. We are dwelling upon their perceived faults with no view to their good. Once again, defining these words, dwelling upon means thinking about constantly. Maybe you think of yourself as kind of an analytical person. Any analyzers in here or overanalyzers? I'm an overanalyzer. Yeah, it's bad. Um, but analyzing is not necessarily a bad thing, but problems arise when we choose to dwell on these, these analyzations and these observations. Um, the next part of our de- definition is the perceived faults of another, and perceived being the key word there. Perception is a very tricky thing. It's affected by many things, and it's filtered through my thoughts, my actions, my environment, my viewpoint of the world, and on and on and on. So when we perceive something as wrong, that's not always accurate. And when we, and due to our perceptions, we can become very critical of others and yet be entirely wrong in our opinion. And the last part is no view to their good. And it's not criticism to necessarily dwell upon a fault you observe if you are going to pray about it or pursue a solution. Indeed, that would be constructive criticism, something that will build others up and seeks to do good versus destructive criticism where we're just going to gossip about it or tear someone down or destroy them. So if there's no purpose, it's no good. So now that we understand criticism, let's look back at our friends in the wilderness, Miriam and Aaron, who spoke against Moses. Remember, Aaron and Miriam are Moses' family, and they were upset about his new wife. Do you really think the issue was over his wife? I'm inclined to believe that that is not the real issue, as in verse 2 it says, And they said, Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard. It wasn't about the Cushite woman. The deeper issue, as revealed in verse 2, was actually a jealousy of Moses' prominence. And that's how it is with most criticism. We lash out and throw barbs at people with our words and pick apart their successes or their perceived faults. But that is really only a surface issue, just like Moses' wife was a surface issue. It's the tip of the iceberg with the real issue amassing underneath of the surface. Have you guys ever heard the saying, it's the straw that broke the camel's back? Yeah, we've all heard that one. And that's how it is with criticism. When that dam of criticism breaks and causes an explosion of assaults and verbal attacks. It's rarely that straw, that one specific thing that we're criticizing, but rather a larger issue that has gone unaddressed, either in our relationship with this other person or within ourselves. And how did God respond to this? Did he take a hands-off approach and say, let Moses fend for himself? No. As we keep reading in Numbers chapter 12, verse 4, it says, And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. That sounds... (laughs) I had that in my notes. (laughs) Have you ever been called to the principal's office or the boss's office? Let's, Let's go to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. I think they're in trouble. 
And God let them have it. In verse 6, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. And in verse 8 it says, Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And so the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. So what he's saying is that Moses, his true servant, I speak with him directly. Who are you that you would bring criticism against my servant? Ooh, who are you? That's what God is saying. Who are you to do this? But the Lord is not finished. In verse 9, I think it's 9. Verse 10, and when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. So Miriam's criticism of her brother, God's chosen servant, suddenly left her as a leper. And remember, in this society, lepers were excommunicated. They were shut out. They were shunned. And so this act left her in a condition where she was pretty much as good as dead, So I would think that this is probably a pretty serious matter to God. He takes criticism quite seriously. So what are we learning here? Well, we have six principles that we can take away from this example of Miriam and Aaron. And the first principle being criticism is wrong. Just like complaining and covetousness, criticism is also a sin. Even Aaron acknowledges the sin of criticism when he says to Moses in verse 11, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. These were Aaron's words. Do not punish us for we have done foolishly and have sinned. So he acknowledges that criticism is a sin. Obviously, in our humanity, we want to soften the judgment associated with sin. It's easy for us to believe that it's simply a, a weakness. So I'm, it's just my weakness or uh, simply a bad habit. But it is much more than that. While it's true that criticism is a weakness and a bad habit, from God's perspective, it is sin. And while we do walk in the forgiveness of the Lord through the work of atonement on the cross, we are never free from the effects of our choices. And sin always separates always. It separates us from God. It changes our capacity to sense God's love and his presence. In simplest forms, it's hindering our fellowship with him. If your spiritual life is like a wilderness, meaning it's dry, dead, cheerless, and joyless, maybe it's because you've allowed a critical attitude toward a person or towards a group of people in your life. That's a hard pill to swallow. When we make the choice to criticize, that choice not only injures your relationship with that person, but also with God. And it also hurts us. It affects us personally in a very negative way. A simple principle, one that is very easy to roll off the tongue, but difficult to live sometimes, is choose to sin, choose to suffer. God is not just arbitrarily choosing good and evil on a whim. Everything that God has called sin is harmful to us either physically, emotionally, or spiritually. And that's why it's sin. 
And that's why he tells us to flee from it. That's why he has called us to a life of separation from that sin, to save us from that harm. People were made to live in fellowship with God. And when we sin, we break our fellowship with God and we hinder our own human happiness and in turn making our life a wilderness. Lastly, criticism also destroys our fellowship with others. Do you enjoy it when you are being criticized? No. (laughs) If someone constantly points out your faults or criticizes you for your choices, do you tend to spend your time with that person like, hey, come be my buddy. Criticize me all day. No. (laughs) There is a fallout. There's a separation in our relationship with others when we become known as critical people. Principle number two, criticism is petty. Think back to verse 1 and 2. They criticize Moses for his Cushite wife. But then in verse 2, they ask the question, does God only speak through Moses? Is he not also speaking through us? The Cushite woman was a petty statement that was covering up the real issue, and that real issue was jealousy. Their issue wasn't necessarily even with Moses, but with a sin in their own lives, the sin of jealousy that they had to deal with. Unfortunately, if a person's heart is bent on criticizing, if their heart is to find fault in others, there will never be anything that can satisfy. And oftentimes, petty petty criticisms are masking one of these larger problems, one of them being unforgiveness and bitterness. These two cause wounds to fester rather than heal, and when it's in the heart, it's on the lips. And it's a vicious cycle. Holding on to bitterness sometimes feels comfortable. We're easy. We're justified. They did this to me, and I want to criticize them for this, so I'm going to hold on to this bitterness. But the longer you hold on to it, the harder it is to lie down. And without forgiveness, we can't lay it down. But we need to release that bitterness and address the issue. The second issue revealed through criticism is envy, jealousy, or resentment. Oftentimes, we become critical because we are jealous of the successes of another. Instead of rejoicing with that person in their joy and success, we find faults and demerits to invalidate their success and pull them down. I've been there. I will be the first to admit it. Yes, it is not a good place to be. But envious of the apparent successes of the perceived less deserving friend or colleague or family member. The third issue we see is personal failure. People become critical of others because they're living in defeat themselves. And we can become discouraged by the direction our life is heading or by the lack of perceived accomplishments in our life so far. And that personal failure in our own life causes us once again in bitterness, to lash out at others around us, and we become critical of others to sort of level the playing field. Principle number three, criticism is self-exalting. Criticizing others takes the focus off of me and my faults and turns me into the superior person. It elevates me as the highest and the best. James McDonald wrote this in his book. Criticism reduces the pain of being in the spotlight and gives me the fleshly satisfaction of running the spotlight. Ouch. (laughs) It's, It's a great deflection tactic. 
Let's focus on you. Principle number four, criticism is painful. Sometimes in life, the ones who hurt us the most are those closest to us. Why? Because they're close to us. They know how to wound us best because they know where we're vulnerable. And criticism is painful. Whoever invented the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, I think they were trying to put on a brave front in face of criticism themselves because all too often words do hurt, worse than sticks and stones. And it it causes very real, very raw, very emotional wounds that take serious work to attend to and sometimes serious time to heal. Perhaps for some, a lifetime of healing if you refuse to deal with the issue, just from words of criticism. But God heals all wounds, both physically and emotionally. And Paul says in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? We must strive to not give into the trap of working to please the critics in our lives. Drown out the noise and do your work for the one who's deserving of your best. I love this quote from President Theodore Roosevelt. He said, it's not the critic who counts, not the one who points out how the strong man stumbles or how the doer of deeds might have done it better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred with sweat and dust and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. His place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Basically, he is saying, get out there and try. We will never please everyone, and doing something will always garnish criticism from those not doing anything. Principle number five, criticism is often inadvertent. One thing to keep in mind is that not every person who criticizes has a wicked and deceitful heart. Too often, we are guilty of speaking without thinking. And this is when we see criticism become prevalent because people utter careless and thoughtless words that strike others like a slap across the face. And our words serve as missiles without purpose, not targeted for harm, but still a weapon of destruction. In Proverbs 11.9, it says, With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. I looked this up in the message, and it reads this way, The loose tongue of the godless spreads destruction, and the common sense of the godly preserves them. Inadvertent criticism is still criticism. And it still hurts. Be careful of a loose tongue, as we were often taught as children, and maybe even as adults. Think before you speak. Spare others the harshness of an ill-thought statement. And principle number six, criticism plugs the flow of God's blessing. Oswald Chambers said that whenever you are in a critical temper, it is impossible to enter into communion with God. We see this with Aaron and Miriam. In their critical attitude, they sinned and angered God. Miriam was then separated from God and from others. Criticism can make us hard and vindictive and cruel. And as we continue down this path of a hardening heart 
Due to criticism, the chasm between us and God widens, and it puts enmity between us and God and us and others. And this separation blocks the flow of God's blessing and favor in your life. The momentary relief that you experience from criticizing others is not worth the damage you will cause to yourself, to others around you, and to your relationship with God. We need to take this wilderness attitude of criticism and replace it with a promised land attitude. And the only attitude big enough to replace a critical attitude is an attitude of love. Love is the answer. And I say that confidently because Scripture tells us in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. He is love. He is the answer. It's what my students always say. Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Well, 2 plus 2 is Jesus? Yes, that works. Oftentimes, 1 Corinthians 13 is quoted as being the love chapter of the Bible, and it serves as a shining example of how we can and should interact with others to show them the love of Christ, to share truth in love. But before we discuss 1 Corinthians 13, let's take a moment to recognize the type of love being talked about in this chapter. The Greeks were magnificent. They had so many words, um, and so many words specifically dealing with love, which is so fascinating. Oftentimes in Greek society, the words that they used were eros, or romantic love, or philio, which was a brotherly love. And these were used most often to describe love between people. But Paul continuously uses agape, which means a selfless love. This love indicates an act of will, a choice. It is not based on fleeting emotions and feelings, but it is rooted in a choice. And this is the type of love that God has towards us, an unselfish kind of love, one where he chooses us over and over and over again. After our mess-ups, after our faults, he still chooses us. One of my favorite verses is 1 John 4.19, and it says we love because he first loved us. He loves us first in our sin, and he loves us now, and that's why I freely choose to love him. Going back to 1 Corinthians 13, we can use this chapter, these several verses there at the beginning of the chapter, as a guidebook to begin transforming our critical attitude into an attitude of love. There is hope. We don't have to continue living with critical attitudes. So, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If you don't love the people you are talking to, you are wasting your time, your breath, and your energy. The scripture says you are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, simply a noisemaker. When we present the truth aggressively or with criticism rather than with love, people become irritated rather than blessed and uplifted. In verse 2, it reads, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. You could be the most spiritual person in the room, have the most biblical knowledge within a 100-mile radius, but if you do not operate in love, it is meaningless. And that's a pretty strong statement. All truth and no love is just brutal, and brutality causes damage. And whether we exhibit great communication skills, great knowledge, great faith, if we don't pair that with love and a loving attitude, the message will fall flat every time. 
People respond to love. Have you ever heard the phrase, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care? It's all about love. We have even seen throughout Scripture, directly from the lips of Jesus, the importance of love in our Christian walk. He said in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 13, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not loved, I gain nothing. So what we've learned so far is that our words don't matter if not spoken in love. And our knowledge, our understanding, that doesn't matter either if not spoken in love. But Paul is also telling us that even if we give everything that we own, if we give it all away, we make this great big gesture, a great big sacrifice. That also means nothing without love. And now you're just empty. You have nothing. Biblical love is truth and affection put together and kept together. It's not about finding a balance. It's about a union between the two. Consider this. Too much truth and no love is legalism. Adversely, too much love and no truth is liberalism. Neither of these is what Christ had intended. We're not supposed to be balancing love and truth as though they were two separate things. What these verses are trying to teach us and what Paul was trying to teach the Corinthians is that truth is a part of love and that you're not really loving if you're not speaking, if speaking truth is not a part of it. In verses 4 through 6, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love and truth go hand in hand. They are a package deal. What Paul is trying to tell us through these verses can be summarized in this. On the majors, action. On the minors, acceptance. In all things, love. What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Verse number six said, Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in truth. In some situations, there is a sin that is happening, and in a critical attitude, we call people out and we throw those barbs that wound instead of correct. It is true that the issue may need to be addressed, but it must be done in love. And how do I know when I need to do this? Well, ask yourself these three questions. Number one, is this a critical path? If failure to take action will produce major problems, it could destroy this person or others in their life. It is a critical path. It is a major thing, and it needs to be addressed. And love will automatically get involved because love wants to correct and lead back toward life. Number two, is the problem chronic? Smaller things can call for action, too, if they're a part of a chronic pattern, repeated bad behaviors or actions that invite a loving response. And option number three, does your proximity imply responsibility? God has put all of us in relationship with others. He has given us relationships with others for accountability for edica- and for edification. If your parents or a spouse see a problem in love, they have been given the God-ordained responsibility to tell the truth in love and help lead once again back toward life. 
The second part of that statement, on the minor's acceptance. When we talk about the minors, we're talking about the minor issues, which oftentimes in a critical attitude can turn into a major issues because we as humans have a tendency to make mountains out of molehills. But oftentimes, these minor issues only irritate us because of our own sinfulness or our own pride. And they're often rooted in personal preference or personality differences and potentially even sin issues that are not critical or chronic. But this is where love comes in. It's vital that Christ followers be accepting, non-prejudiced, non-fault-finding, and non-critical. Love learns to accept the person with his failures. It's not denying that there is an irritation, but love is simply recognizing that the one I love is more important than my own desire to live an irritant-free life. So what are the minors? What are the minor issues? A small quick list might include musical or movie preferences, small personality differences, even cultural differences. When someone comes from a different culture or a different country, their perspective is different, and so you have experienced these cultural differences. But remember that love is patient. It waits for people to change. It is long-suffering, and it is persistent and compassionate in the face of opposition. In verse 7, it says that love bears all things. That is a great attribute of acceptance. It bears the weight of any misunderstandings, and it defends the heart. It also says in verse 7 that love believes all things, meaning it believes the best about the other person. It also says that love hopes all things. It sees people not as they are, but as they will be by God's grace, just as God doesn't see us as who we are, but who he created us to be. And aren't we thankful? It also says that love endures all things. And this term indicates an action, an action of driving a stake into the ground, actually. It's a military term. Meaning that when love endures all things, it will be there for you always, no matter what. This love is never going away. Simply stated, love never fails. It's not wishy-washy. It's not fickle. It's not harsh nor brutal. But love, God's love, is truth and affection perfectly combined. And that love never fails. And it will never fail to accomplish God's highest and best purposes because love will do the work that we as humans cannot. Aren't you so thankful for a love that bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things? I am very thankful. And this leads us to our app time. So I've got some questions for you for app time. Question number one. Name a time that an attitude of criticism has separated you from God, caused you harm, or separated you from others, and how did you resolve that conflict? If you don't like that question, you can take number two. Tell of a time that you have been able to overcome comparison because complaint, covetousness, criticism, the common denominator in all of these attributes is comparison, which is the thief of all joy. So 
Tell of a time that you have been able to overcome comparison with an attitude of love. If you still don't like that question, I have another one. And that one is, what immediate immediate steps can you take to begin operating with an attitude of love currently? So find a friend and find a question. All right. I hope everyone found a good question and was able to discuss it. And I hope this lesson has been meaningful for you tonight and that you were able to take home some things to chew on this week in regards to taking off an attitude of criticism and putting on an attitude of love. I know for me, just personally, it's been a blessing and an answered prayer because, um, and I'll share with you back in February of this year, I had made this a matter of prayer and made it a spiritual edification goal for 2019. God would teach me to love to love those around me as he loves them, to be selfless in my approach towards others as he exemplifies. And at the end of the day, we are all called to be imitators of Christ, not only in his suffering, but in the way he loves, selflessly, without reservation, with patience and kindness, free from envy or boasting, a love that bears all, believes all, hopes all, and endures all things. God is an answer, prayer answering God, and he is always loving us and teaching and edifying us through his word. And I'm so grateful that love for the love that he has for us tonight. If you wouldn't mind standing, we're going to take a moment to um, pray and take this lesson with us this week. If you wouldn't mind raising your voice with me in prayer tonight over this lesson. Lord, I thank you for your word. Your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, God, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, God, discerning thoughts and intents of our hearts. Lord, I pray that you help us to take this thought home with us tonight and carry it with us throughout the week. Show us, Lord, through your love, our areas of weakness and the areas where we find ourselves falling into this trap, this cycle of criticism. Help us to root out the deeper issue, God, whether it be an issue of unforgiveness or an issue of bitterness. Maybe it's an issue of our own pride, but God, help us to lay that on the table and to be laid bare before you so that you, the great physician, can help us begin to renew our minds and transform our attitudes from one of criticism to one of love. God, I give you praise and I exalt you, Lord, and we are eternally grateful for all that you have done for us and for your work on the cross that shows us the ultimate love, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. 
consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.